0: Let just turn now to consider the words you will find in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, reading at verse 17. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, reading at verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now we continue tonight our series in which we are having a look at interviews that our Lord had with certain people who came to him with questions or for advice. And uh, tonight we look at the story, as it is commonly known, of the rich young ruler. And uh, without spending any way, any time by way of introducing the subject let us just look at it under the following heads we have here a promising situation that came one running and kneeled to it and we have this man asking a very disturbing question good master what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life and to that question Jesus gives Thirdly, an unexpected answer. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, and so on. And in reply to that answer, we have a very revealing reply. He answers it unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then fifty will read it, look at this shattering disclosure made to him by the Lord. One thing thou lackest, sell all that thou hast, and so on. And finally, we have this very sad scene of this young man who was sad at that saying, and departed as far as we know, never again to be interviewed by the Lord. First of all, then this very promising situation it has been said by a modern writer that here we have a picture of a very outstanding type of fellow who is begging to know how he can get to heaven the type of person who has been referred to as the evangelist's dream the kind of person who is ripe for conversion easy to speak to easy to get through to, he is open and quite prepared to talk about religion. A lot of people aren't like that the moment you mention religion to them they shut off but here's a man who introduced the subject himself and who opened the interview by coming in this very promising way to the Lord now it seems as though this man was both anxious and enthusiastic because we read that came running to the Lord. He was very concerned about his spiritual condition. He was also a young man who was very mannerly. He kneeled before the Lord. He adopted the position. That was applicable to himself, and he gave the Lord the position that was due to him. He kneeled before him. A lot of young people aren't like that. Today we live in a day when young people in many areas, and in this area, eh, tend to defy authority. This is the general impression that you have of a young life nowadays. But this man wasn't like that, he was sincere, he was anxious, he was respectful, good master. What shall I do, or what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, there are some who maintain that he was probably in his late teens, perhaps even in his early twenties. And as we understand this, he was quite religious. Upright, moral, honest, hard working. He was rich. <laughs> he was probably a good type of not only a good uh, young fellow, but a good son, highly principled. He wasn't in any way cynical. Possessed a good character. It was character would be very easy to give this man a good character reference. He would, as some people say, have made a first class Christian. He was an excellent. Citizen. But notwithstanding all that, this young fellow was quite dissatisfied. He had a disturbing question, and this is what we look at secondly this very disturbing question what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he himself very clearly indicates that there was something missing in his life. He knew what was missing, but he didn't know how to get it. The thing that was missing was eternal life. The missing link was the secret to obtaining it. He knew what he lacked, in other words, so he thought eternal life. Now, as you know, this is a word, or these are two words which are which the Bible is full of eternal life. I suppose that the best known verse in which the words are used is the third version, John 17, in our Lord's High Priestly Prayer. This is life eternal, he said, he himself defines it, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now there is our Lord's definition of eternal life. But we have to break that down somewhat so that you and I will understand it better. What is it to know God? I'm sure that in a sense every person here tonight has a knowledge of God, but yet every person here tonight does not have eternal life. You can know God through studying the word, studying the Bible, learning passages from the Bible off by heart, learning the catechism. For example, the catechism that says, you: what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. You know that about God. You know that he is the creator of the world. He is the sustainer of of, of this world. He is your creator and your sustainer. You know that God is holy, God is all-wise, God is right, God is love, God is spirit, God is truth. You may know all these things about God and yet not know God. You see the word to know God is a word which indicates that here you have a relationship between an individual and God which is real, meaningful, personal. Eternal life is that relationship between an individual and God that brings him into living contact with God, brings him into fellowship and communion with God. He knows God in that way. He loves this God whom he knows. His trust is in God. His whole life revolves round God. This is life eternal. If you get your hands on a paperback published some time ago, a few years ago by IVF, I think it was uh, by James Packer on Knowing God, you young people, get your hands on that book and read it. It's well worth reading. In that book, he speaks of this, well, of course, the title being Knowing God, he must and he says it, he speaks of this knowledge of God and he speaks of eternal life. And he puts it like this. What makes life worth living, he said, is having a big enough objective. Something which catches your, your imagination and lays hold of your allegiance. And that thing, he says, is what the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what is higher, what is more exalted, what is, more com- what is a more compelling goal? than to know God. It is to have this personal involvement with God. To know that my relationship with God is right. To know that the life and the favour and the fellowship and the blessing of God has become mine through faith in Jesus Christ. To know that I have been blessed With all spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. That for us is life eternal. Now here is a very religious young man. Very upright, very moral, respectful, and respectable. Well brought up, highly principled, very knowledgeable. As he himself was to say. And yet, this was missing in his life. There was no personal relationship, no personal contact between himself and God. And he comes to Jesus with this very disturbing question. And he says, what will I do? Or as one translation has it, what one other thing can I do that I may obtain or inherit or merit or win or find this missing link? In my life. How can I go about it? He asks the Lord. What can I do to receive it? And the whole emphasis, the whole thrust of the question that he addresses to Jesus is placed here on his own doing. Good master, what one other thing can I do? Where have I missed out on this? Where have I gone wrong? In all my searching, I have failed to find this. What a picture this conjures up. A young man eager to do the right thing. desirous of eternal life. Coming to Jesus for the answer. And yet, how far this young fellow was on the wrong road. And I wouldn't be surprised if there may be people here tonight like that. I'm sure there are. Brought up as many of you are and have been in our religious environment. Confronted as you have been all along life's way with the claims of Christianity upon your life. And being the type of person you are, living as best you can and trying to be as good a citizen as you can, as highly principled as you can, and that is a great objective in any person's life, to have a high ideal. And yet you would be probably the very first to admit that you've missed out on something that other people possess. This sole relationship with God, this contentment, this life that the Bible pictures as a life that is lived resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ, or the life that the psalmist summed up, we'll sing it later on tonight, delighting thyself in God. You've missed out on that blessing and the great question confronting you probably tonight is this why? where have I gone wrong? where have I missed the mark? what have I missed out? what one thing have I failed to do so far that leaves me destitute of this most desirable of all blessings? well to that question Jesus gave a most unexpected answer. Why do you call me good he says thou know there is none good but one that is God. thou knowest the commandments do not commit adultery do not uh, kill do not steal do not bear false witness defraud not honor thy father and thy mother. Now what Jesus does here is this he does two things He focuses this man's attention on, first of all, the need, as I've indicated already, the need to know God, and secondly, the need to know the law of God. And he introduces that by saying something very interesting. Young man, he says, why do you call me good? There is none good. But God, now some people and some modern theologians have taken these words and have used them as a platform on which to build their teaching that Jesus was not divine at all. That he himself stated to this man, I'm not good. Meaning that he wasn't God. I'm not God. You shouldn't deal with me. You should deal with God. I'm only a man. There are some people who believe that Jesus was just a man. He wasn't God. And the proof of that is that he said to this man, there is none good but God. But of course we know that that is not what Jesus said it meant at all. Because over and over again, the Bible claims divinity for Jesus. And Jesus himself claimed it for himself. It was one of the reasons why he was put to death. This man makes himself equal with God. And if Christianity means anything at all, it means this, that at the very heart of the Christian faith is this person who was none other than God and who became man. What then does he mean when he says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Well, there are some who believe that Jesus meant this, that this young fellow was of the opinion that Jesus had found the secret of eternal life and that this was what made him good. There are others who are of the opinion that this young fellow didn't really recognize that he was speaking to God in our nature. And it is very probable that he didn't know that. It is very probable that this man considered Jesus as just a man who had found the secret of eternal life. And so Jesus directs him immediately to the person that he has to deal with if he wants life. So he was saying to him, if you're really concerned about eternal life, if you really want this thing that you think is missing in your life, you have to deal with God. You have to deal with God. And you know and I know that is this is the great teaching of the Bible that it directs you and me in all our need and in all our sinfulness as we were hearing last week to God the only one who can deal with our sin the Bible directs a sinner to God and to the God of the Bible not to the God of your imagination not to the God that you understand him there's no doubt some of you here tonight who uh, uh, perhaps in the past or even yet still frequent meetings of AA Alcoholics Anonymous Whereas you know part of the uh, if not the constitution certainly of the of the, some of the the teaching there that some people have to accept is that you, you believe that, that that you believe God as you understand him. But my friend, that's not good enough. If you're going to be saved it's not the God of your understanding that you have to deal with. It's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible. And very often the God of the Bible doesn't square with the God of your and mine understanding. And so Jesus directs this man to God and he says to him, if you want salvation, you deal with God. The same applies to you tonight. And maybe you're missing out on salvation just because you failed to deal with God in this matter you may be relying on the bible relying on your prayer life relying on the church relying on your upbringing relying on your knowledge knowing that you're a sinner none of these things will save you these things together won't save you you have to come to god and to the god of the bible there is none other, and this is the message that Jesus was to give to the disciples later on after the interview ended. And he said to them rather startling fashion, I tell you, he says, it is almost, it is, it. look at the difficulty that rich people have, he says, with the matter of salvation. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples incredulously say to the Lord, who then can be saved? And he answers, with men it is impossible, but not with God. Because with God, all things are possible. And the only one who can save is God. And I believe that that is why the Lord addressed this man that this. He directs him to the God of salvation. And he says to him, secondly, that God has given you his law. That God speaks to you, he says. You see, there are some people who say, Ah, well, yes, I know it's all right for you to tell me to come to God. But uh, what does God say? How do I know what God says? How can I find God? Where is God? Well, we know one thing about God, that he has revealed himself in the world. The Bible is God speaking to you and to me. The law that Jesus directs this person to the second table of the law, don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. The law was given by God for life. You remember when Moses received the law on Sinai and when he gave it to the children of Israel, He summed it up, he concluded the giving of the law in this way. I call heaven and earth, he says, to testify in your presence today that I have set before you life or death. Therefore, choose life. The law is the expression of the mind of God. And in the law, God tells you what to do. And Jesus testing this man and he's wanting to find the answer to this question he's wondering of course though he knew it he wanted this young man to make this discovery he's wanting this young fellow to answer a question and the question is this if I keep the law to the best of my ability will that give me eternal life And the young fellow failed the test. So I saw he was sitting down at an examination. He's got this paper in front of him, and there's this big question on the paper If you need eternal life, will keeping the law and give it to you? And he puts down two answers on the paper A, I have kept the law from the time that I can remember. B, I haven't got eternal life as a result and his failure lay here that he didn't recognize that his inability to obtain salvation through obedience to the law was leading him to the only one who could save him and meet him at the point of his inability the problem with a lot of people lies just there they try to save themselves by their own doings and they fail to recognize that they cannot do it. They fail to recognize that God alone can save and do you know who the saved person is in this church tonight? Man and woman, boy and girl, I'll tell you. He and she is saved. Those who have come in their hopeless and helpless inability and have cried to God, God, I've tried everything. Save me by thy power. Here the Lord is putting this young man to the test and he's asking him, have you yet discovered your own inability and he hadn't he hadn't he hadn't really recognized it he says in this very revealing reply that we look at fourthly to the Lord he says Lord I'm innocent I have kept the law from the time that I can remember I have observed all these things from my youth ah well in many ways, this is a very revealing answer. It tells a lot about the young fellow. He was respectable and respectful. He had done this and he had done that. But he hadn't yet discovered himself as a sinner who needed a savior. His life, as far as he could judge, was outwardly blameless. A well turned out young fellow, strong religious and no doubt moved in the best circus. if he had been living here or in other areas there are some people who maintain that he would have been encouraged to have become a member of the church you would expect to see him in the prayer meeting if he was in school I've no doubt he would have been a member of SU highly principled as I said earlier but there was this missing link and the missing link in his life was this he hadn't yet discovered himself as a sinner who needed a savior how many of you may be present here tonight like that as far as one can judge as I have said earlier very very respectful may I speak particularly to the young people here tonight how many of you all that you have learned and seen and known have not yet submitted yourselves in your own helpless inadequacy in the presence of God and said Lord I am a sinner who cannot save myself save me I pray thee well, this young man hadn't yet made that discovery. So what does Jesus say to him? Well, he makes this shattering disclosure. Fifthly, Jesus beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor and Thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now there are three things here that Jesus tells this man he must do. He must first of all know himself as a sinner. He must then come as a penitent sinner. And he must then come as a believing sinner. If he wants to be saved. And this really comes and cuts across what we had here last and So I'll go through it very briefly indeed. First of all notice Jesus looked at him and he loved him. What does this mean? Well, I think it means this that Jesus dealt very, very sympathetically with this young fellow. And he dealt with him with us in the most in, 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 in the most in the most purposeful way. Jesus was prepared to help this man. And he, he was very sympathetic towards him. And he had great compassion. He was very helpful. That's what it means, I believe, by loving him. And this is always the best way for the counsellor to meet the inquirer. If someone comes to you on the matter of religion or salvation, you're a Christian, see that you're trying to be as helpful to that person as you possibly can. Don't brush them off, encourage them. And I believe that the Lord was doing this. He was encouraging, he was sympathetic, He was compassionate. And what did he say? Well, you see, he didn't deny the truth, though he was sympathetic and encouraging. The problem very often in evangelism is this, that you and I, in trying, we bend over backwards to help people, and then we tend to give them the wrong advice. We tend to show them the wrong road, and we miss out. You've got to tell the truth. No matter what it costs. And the truth is this, says Jesus to the young man. There are three things that you need. You really need to know yourself as a sinner. You see, this man had missed the point of the law. The law of God, as we heard last week here, exposes sin. When you read the Bible, there are times when you won't feel very comfortable reading the Bible. When you read through the law of God, you begin to feel uncomfortable, and you realize you're not doing these things at all. And you realize that there's more to the law than the letter. The law is spiritual, says Paul. It was so spiritual, he says, in my life. I made a discovery one day, and the discovery was this, that I had not known sin except the law had said, thou shalt not know sin. What is it, thou shalt not sin? What did it mean? He meant this, that for years and years and years, he was a Pharisee, thinking he was keeping the law. And then when the Spirit of God came with power into his life, he realized that there was more to the law than he thought, realized it. Jesus said the same thing to them on the same on the mount. The law says, you must not commit murder. That doesn't mean to say that you've got to knife someone deliberately, that you've got to take a gun and shoot a person. Jesus says there's more to murder than that. It's as deep as this. If you harbour hatred in your brother in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. Same with adultery. It isn't a case of physically going and taking a woman and committing sin with her. It's as deep-seated as this. It's looking after it. And lasting for it That's adultery. In the spirit. Of the thing. And so Jesus said to this young man. Do you think you've kept the law? No you haven't. And this is how you're going to know it he says. Sell I, go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast. And give to the poor. And then come. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Take up the cross. And follow me. Jesus takes a knife you see to this man and he opens up his heart to him and he asks him have you really kept the law? what about the sin of covetousness in your life and nobody discovered why the man was so rich nothing mattered in his life but his possessions he was very religious very respectful, very concerned about his soul but you see He wouldn't give up his life's work. And his life's work was to amass as much as he possibly could to himself. And it didn't matter who suffered in the process as long as he got what he was after. And Jesus asks him, Have you really kept the law as you thought you were keeping it? And then he says something else to it. You really want eternal life, you've got to get rid of this sin that is in your life. The sin is the sin of covetousness, amassing all that you can for yourself, having your life dominated by this one thing, riches in your life. Well, he says to him, If you're going to have the life that you want and the missing link in your life, you've got to give that up, the thing that is standing between you and this very life that you want one thing you love this is the missing element in your life giving that up that you may obtain what you want and that's what we call repentance it is being so sorry for your sins that you are prepared to give them up and repentance is not easy that is why Repentance is always associated with tears in the Bible, the tears of repentance, the pain and the agony of having to go through this giving up process that I may lay hold of eternal life. But my friend, there's no other way in which you can do it. Not that repentance is the ground on which you are saved. but part of the process part of the process no one has ever been saved without repenting and repenting is that giving up what comes between you and salvation whatever the sin may be it may not be covetousness in your life but I know that it is there whatever it is There is always something standing between the unsaved sinner and Christ. Always something. And that sinner will never be saved till he gives up what stands between him and the Savior. And again, I speak to you here tonight. And again, I ask you to answer the question for yourself. Knowing as you do know, That you are a stranger to eternal life. That God is not in your life through faith in Christ. Knowing that there is this missing element in your life. You who are disturbed and you who are dissatisfied. You who know that this is missing. You know as well what it is that you find so difficult to give up. That you may obtain eternal life. And you have, as I said last week, to go through the pain barrier of us. Jesus said to this man, sell whatsoever thou hast. Give it away and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. That is repentance. So, here you are now, confronted with your need to abandon your sin. If you really want eternal life. And do you know why some of you are finding it so easy to live tonight? Do you know why you are not a Christian? Because, my friend, you're not prepared to accept the agony of giving up what the Lord's finger, what the Lord puts his finger on in your life. And then there is this third element faith and come, he says Take up the cross and follow me. Now, this is what I dealt with last week, and just no word. You see, if you're going to give up your sin, don't think you're going to find yourself in a vacuum. Do you see there are some people who are perplexed about this? I was, and I'm sure some others are. As it were in the throes of conversion, I wonder now. Yes, I know that I've got to give up this life. I know really in my heart of hearts that if I'm to be a Christian, if I'm to be a, if if I'm to be a believer, I must. Give this up I really must Whatever it is In one sense Generalizing it is this A life in which Christ is not I must give that up But my problem is this It's not the difficulty I have in thinking of giving it up It's the problem of knowing what I'm going to have Is my life going to be lived in a back You remember how Paul spoke and defined the spoke of the revival that had hit Thessalonica word he says has gone abroad throughout the world of what happened here how he says you turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for a son from heaven that's faith you see faith brings you to Jesus Christ come Take up the cross and follow me. This is, as it were, the substitute for that which stands between you and him. You give up that you may receive something far, far better. And the thing you receive, first of all, is the cross of Christ himself. You identify yourself with Jesus who died on the cross. And then you shoulder the cross that he gives you. And you follow him. Oh, I know the way is difficult. I said last week, I know there's pain associated with this. I know there's agony. I know that I know it involves a, a painful agonizing decision. Yes. But look at the compensation. Follow me. That's it. He takes over the life that was once dominated by sin and the challenge to you is this tonight as he said to the young man you give up what comes between you and me and you take me you accept me and really that isn't a comparison it's a contrast a life of sin compared to a life of faith In Jesus Christ. And here you have finally this very sad parting. And he was sad at that saying, went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Why was he sad? Because he couldn't practice the truth. Because he recognized that the demands were too great and by his action he admitted that he was too much in love with his sin to part with it to receive a savior he was sad because he wasn't prepared to accept the terms of salvation he was sad because his mind, his will, his affections were not won from the service of sin to the service of Christ he was sad because in his heart he really preferred treasures on earth to treasures on heaven and perhaps the sadness in your life tonight lies just there that you recognize and you know if this is the case with you you should have a sad state indeed because you recognize that notwithstanding the claims and the demands that are made upon you You are not prepared to meet them, you just can't do it, and you go away once again sad. Well my friend before you go, let me remind you of this, and you reminded of it those of us who were here last Thursday as well. You may never again be challenged by Christ in the gospel. There is a sense in which you tonight are being interviewed by him as that rich young ruler was interviewed that night. And the thought that you may never again be interviewed or to add Your sadness But I can't leave you Without saying this What our Lord I think is telling this young man Is this And he went on to tell this To the disciples That what you may feel impossible Is possible with God And I say that to encourage you I say that to encourage you I know Full well that when you consider yourself and the things that you have to do you can you sort of draw back and you say no I, I just can't do it I can't do it well I accept that my friend and this is the teaching of Jesus I believe to this young man as he went on to say to the disciples no he says he couldn't do it but God did or God could if he had only committed himself to God with men it is impossible but not with God I know that no one of us can save himself for herself, but God can and the teaching here is this he's driving this young man in his felt inability to the God who could save him and he didn't do it he went away he went away why should you go away when you can come to him to save you and there's one other thing here Peter, I think, is almost trying to console his Lord when he says to him, ah, yes, he said, but at least some of us have left all to follow thee. And so he was putting his hand on Jesus' shoulder and saying to him, don't be discouraged. You see, here was an interview, and as far as we can judge, speak with reverence, Jesus failed to direct this man to, or I'll put it another way, this man refused to respond to, to the advice that Jesus gave And you can well imagine Jesus feeling in dis- He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And those of us who are in the service of Christ There are times when we feel discouragement Times when we say with, I say of old Is anyone at all believing What we're saying And this is the kind of situation Which Peter as put his hand on his shoulder and said Lord don't be discouraged At least some of us Have followed you and Jesus answered and he says, I tell you Peter, no one has given up home, father, mother, brother, sister for my sake but has received far more than he gave up in this life and in the life to come everlasting life and there's a second element of encouragement for you tonight Of course you can't do it yourself But he can do it for you That's the first thing The second thing is this My friend there is no comparison With what you have to give up And what he gives No comparison at all Put another way It's well worth giving up everything For his sake For his sake And the third thing That comes out here is this as the narrative ends. Have you noticed this? we read right there tonight in Luke's Gospel. These three stories are linked together. The Pharisee and the publican praying in the temple. The rich young man coming to Jesus in his need. And Jesus taking up little babies in his arms and blessing them. And do you know what the connecting link between the three is? It's the link of utter helplessness. Sinner cries, God, I have nothing. Have mercy on me. The baby is caught up in his arms and has nothing unless he blesses him. And he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. And the rich young man comes and he has nothing after all he tried. And he comes with nothing, with a plea to give him the remedy for his need. And the remedy is given. And that's a connecting link. And this is the glory of the gospel. The gospel finds you and me tonight with nothing in the presence of God. And this is its glory. God meets us in our utter helplessness. And is able to save us. Will you come and say tonight with Augustus Toplady. Remember the way that he put it. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy lost demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone And in the well-known words, he will want to say this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Will you come? Let us pray. O Lord, in thy mercy save us. Take us, we pray thee, to thyself, and help us tonight to come in all our sinful inadequacy and hopelessness and lostness and cry to thee for salvation knowing that thou wilt save do it for thy name's sake and the prayer should be thine in christ amen <laughs>